And for everyone else who's going to be hanging out with me this morning, you can head to Matthew chapter 6. So grab your Bibles, your phones, your devices, head on over to Matthew chapter 6. So we have set the theme for our year here at Meadowbrook Church as our year of pursuing peace. We are wanting to know how can we remain in the peace of God regardless of what we're going through. How is it possible that the Apostle Paul in Philippians 4, as he sits in a jail cell, or in, in chains anyway, a house arrest probably, but as he sits there waiting for what is almost certainly going to be his execution, he is still able to say there is a peace that surpasses understanding. That even in that moment of persecution, even in that moment of facing death, there is a peace for the Christ follower that just surpasses understanding, that it is beyond what would make sense to our human minds. How can we remain in that peace regardless of what we are going through? And how do we live at peace with one another as we do that? How do we live at peace with those we disagree with? How do we live at peace even with our enemy? And so we are going to be exploring these things as an overarching theme for the year. Uh, There are five questions that we'll keep reminding you of, that we'll keep coming back to as we go through this year. Uh, Number one, what is our attitude going to be? Are we going to grumble and complain our way through this year? Or are we going to be people who are full of faith and full of hope and full of love as Christ followers are called to be? How are we treating other people in this time, especially those who are maybe on the other side of some of the issues that we might disagree with in these days? So how are we treating the people as we seek to love God by loving other people? How are we drawing near to the Lord in this time? If he is the source of our peace, How are we making that a priority of drawing close to him? What are we contributing to the world with our words, with our posts, with our actions? What are we sowing out there? Uh, What are people thinking when they see us and they know we are a Christ follower and they see what we are sharing? What are we sowing into the world as we seek to be light and salt and a blessing to this dark world? And then who are we imitating? Ultimately, we are imitating Jesus, but the Apostle Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. There are people in our lives where we are to imitate the Christ that we see in them. And so as we look around to the people around us, who are we imitating? Or are we not imitating the Christ followers around us? Are we imitating the darker voices that are out there. So what does that look like for us? So we started a a short sermon series a couple of weeks ago that we called Connection Points, and it has to do with that question of how are we drawing near to the Lord? When Gideon has his encounter with the angel of the Lord, he builds an altar in Judges chapter 6, and he names the altar, the Lord is peace. That's who the Lord is. It's not just a quality that he has, Peace is something that the Lord is. The Lord is peace. And so if we are pursuing peace, then it stands to reason that we are pursuing the Lord, who is the source of all peace. He is the source of the peace that surpasses understanding. So how are we connecting with him then? How are we pursuing him? How are we seeking him in our lives that we might receive that blessing of peace that comes from him? So a number of years ago, I'd actually kind of forgotten that this story happened, but Facebook now reminds me of everything I've ever done. And it tells you four years ago, eight years ago, ten years ago, this happened. And so it was a major event when it happened, and I'm surprised that I hadn't thought about it in a while. But it was Christmas uh, a number of years ago, and we were living in Sudbury at the time. We were pastoring up there. And it was Boxing Day, and so we'd spent Christmas up in Sudbury. We were driving down to southern Ontario to see family. And so Boxing Day, we are driving home, and that was the year of the crazy ice storm. Do you remember that? I don't remember. I I don't know what happened down here. It didn't really affect us at all in Sudbury. Uh, But in the Toronto area where where our families were, it had been just uh, a crazy Christmas because everything was just coated in ice, and the trees were all coated, and the power was out for days. And so that was that, that Christmas. And so we are driving home from Sudbury, and we are coming down the 400. We're just south of Barrie. Uh, I'm in the fast lane, fast lane, driving responsibly, but in the fast lane. And there's a pickup truck in front of us. And as we are following behind this pickup truck, uh, again, safely and everything, doing everything right, uh, all of a sudden, a big sheet of ice that was on the roof of the pickup truck lifted off and flew up into the air. 
And it kind of went in the air and it kind of spun in the wind and kind of hung there for a second. And you know, there's like that cliche where things like go into slow motion for a moment. That's exactly what this was. Or everything went into slow motion. This thing lifted off the size of the roof of a pickup truck, flipped around crazily in the air. And I went, that thing is going to land on our car. And that is exactly what happened. And I've thought about this over and over again. Of all the places in time and space that this thing could have gone, like if we had been half a second earlier, if we'd been half a second later, if we were in a different lane, if the guy had cleaned off his roof like you're supposed to, that none of it would have happened. But of all the places in time and space that that huge chunk of ice could have gone, it landed smack on the windshield as we were going 120 down the highway. And this is part of where I know that God is real, for one. And this is part of where I know and learned that I'm actually pretty cool under pressure. I don't like it, but I can, I can be steady during it. Uh, because as that happened, there was no shoulder on the left for us to get to. And so with all the coolness in the world, I turned on my turn signal, checked my blind spot, got into the middle lane, checked my blind spot again, got over, and safely pulled over to the side of the road, and uh, then figured out what we were going to do next. And so it was the, the smoothest, coolest thing I've ever done in my life. And then as we parked and went, ho, oh, and I pulled out my phone, then my hands were going like this, and I went, wow, we almost just died right there. And so some of the glass had come in, and, and Sarah and I had some cuts on our hands, but other than that, everyone was perfectly fine. Kaylee was a baby in the back seat. Uh, everybody was fine. Praise the Lord. But as that ice hung there in the air for that moment, and, and again, could not have landed more perfectly on the windshield, but as it hung there, a word came out of my mouth, and that word was Jesus. And there wasn't time for anything more than that. Now, in that word, there was an awful lot of prayer going on because I knew I could see exactly what was going to happen, how fast we were going. There were cars all around us. And so that in that moment, there was enough time for one prayer to fly up to heaven, and it was just the word Jesus. This was not, Lord, your word clearly says that you will give your angels command over us, and we're quoting the word back to the Lord as we pray. There was no theology involved in what was going on here. There was none of that happening. There was enough for one word, it was Jesus, and thank the Lord that that was enough. That prayer was enough to be answered that day. And when Jesus taught on prayer, he said, yeah, you don't need lots of words. You don't need flowery language. You don't need, I mean, it can be those things, but you don't need those things. Prayer is not about impressing God with how eloquent you are. Prayer is not about showing off your theological knowledge. Prayer is not about if I say it enough, then maybe God will change his mind on something. Prayer is not a religious ritual that we go through where we just kind of like we talked about with scripture last week, we cross things off our list. Prayer is not primarily about a laundry list of things that we are asking for. It does include that. But prayer is primarily a connection place with Almighty God. Prayer is primarily a place to connect and commune with your Heavenly Father. That's primarily what it is. And there's lots of different ways it can look, and there's a lot of different ways that we can do it. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 18 says, Pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. So there's more than just one kind of prayer. There's lots of kinds of prayer. We're going to talk about a few of them today. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. The amount of times the word all shows up in this passage. On all occasions, with all kinds of prayers, always keep on praying for all of the Lord's people. And, and we're told in Scripture to pray ceaselessly. And, and I don't know that we literally can ever do that because you're sleeping sometimes and sometimes you're eating and whatever. But the, this lifestyle of prayer that we are called to. And so last week we talked about Scripture and how our, our relationship with Scripture, where we connect with God through Scripture and where we are seeking truth and where we are seeking His will and we're seeking ultimately to know Him, to connect with Him, to commune with Him better. And prayer, like Scripture, as we discussed last week, can become a chore. It can become, I'm doing it because I'm supposed to. It can become, I need to cross it off my list of things that I did today. And if that is where we're at, then I'll just throw out there, there is more to prayer than what we have experienced. Because our time in the Word every day, at its best, should be the highlight of our day. And our time in prayer and communion with our Heavenly Father can be a highlight of our day. 
And if our prayer life has become boring and stale, then, then there's just there's something we need to press into. There's something more that we need to seek because it's, it's connecting with the living God. And so I told you last week, my heart for you as a pastor is not that you would read the Bible because you're supposed to, but that you would just fall in love with Scripture, that it would be a joy to engage with. That's my heart for prayer for us as well, is that it's not a religious duty, but it becomes a joy in our life. It is something that we are, are eager to do and excited to do. So as we go through today, just a reminder, we do have an email address, questions at meadowbrook.ca. If you have any questions about the message, you can shoot them over there. We'd be very happy to answer them. Let's take a look at our text this morning. We're in Matthew chapter 6, and we are starting in verse 5. Jesus is teaching here in the Sermon on the Mount, and your heading probably says something like prayer or the Lord's Prayer. So starting in verse 5, and when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, For they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them. For your father knows what you need before you ask him. This then is how you should pray. Our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. So the Lord's Prayer, and it's something that I am old enough that when I was young, we still did it in school. We would still do it every morning in school. I was uh, in about grade two or three, I think, when that got phased out in Ontario. But it's something that most Christians know. You've probably memorized a version of it. Even a lot of non-Christians know it because we grew up uh, saying it at public events and in public schools. And it is not so much, I think, something uh, that is meant to be just kind of chanted through. Uh, Because that just doesn't feel like prayer to me. This is not so much a formula for prayer as much as it's a framework. Jesus is saying this is what prayer looks like. Uh, And it's never wrong to pray God's word, and I think we should be praying the Lord's Prayer to be certain. But within this prayer, it's actually a fairly short prayer. Uh, Depending on your version of the Bible, it's around 50 to 60 words. Uh, You can do the whole prayer in about 20 seconds. It is not a a huge, long, flowery prayer, because Jesus has just said, I don't need super long, flowery prayers. But within that, you know, 20 seconds... There are all kinds of prayers happening in those few verses. There's, there's not, uh, it's not limited that this is the only kind of prayer, but there's a number of different kinds of prayer happening here, which we're going to unpack today. So before Jesus gets to the actual prayer, he sets up some, some parameters for what prayer can be like. And he talks about, uh, you know, don't be showy, don't show off. It doesn't literally mean don't pray in public, uh, because Jesus would sometimes pray in public and the apostles would sometimes pray in public. It certainly means do not show off with your prayers. Do not be drawing attention to yourself and how eloquent you are and how how lovely and flowery your prayers are. So he encourages there is something about this that should be connected to uh, just your intimacy with the Father. That there is a place for that. And there's times when we pray together and there's times where we pray on our own. Uh, But Jesus encourages, yeah, pray in a way that's not drawing attention to yourself. And also makes very, very clear to us, and this should be encouraging to everybody, it doesn't need to be long. It doesn't need to be long at all. And Jesus has this interesting line in there where he says, the Father knows what you need before you even ask him. Like our prayer time is not about us giving God information. It's not about us saying, Father, I'm sick. It's like, yeah, he knows he's God. He already knows that. He's well aware. This is not about us bringing information to the Lord. This is about us engaging and connecting in that trust relationship with the Father. It is about honoring him as God, reminding ourselves of who he is, reminding ourselves of who we are in him. 
And so as we get going, uh, as we started this series, I threw out there this idea of a 48-minute challenge. And we're talking about if the Lord is a priority in our life, then that needs to show up with him receiving some time from us, that, that we need to give him time as a priority. And so 48 minutes, you won't find a scripture that backs that up. Uh, it's a bit of an arbitrary number to be certain. But it came from the idea that we're sleeping for around eight hours today a day, we're working for around eight hours a day, and then around eight hours a day, we have some flexibility with our time. That time is our own to do with what we like. And so 48 minutes would be a tithe of that time, that time that we have to do with what we want. And if I'm going to honor God with a tithe of my income, then why not shoot to honor God with at least a tithe of my time and and give that time to him as a priority? If we want to draw closer to him, just like any human relationship, you have to put some time in. You have to make it a priority. You have to carve out that time. And so, uh, again, if our prayer life has become stale, then that just means there's more for us to press into. When we pastored at the church in Sudbury, uh, every church I've been at has pre-service prayer times, but at the church in Sudbury, our pre-service prayer time, like where we were just praying for the Sunday morning and praying for the worship team and praying for the kids' ministry and praying for the, the tech side and the sermon and the fellowship and everything... Uh, the pre-service prayer time would get 40, 50 people showing up to it in a church of about 300. And when we would gather for that prayer time, we had such powerful times praying in his presence that, you know, it would be maybe 20 minutes of prayer and it would fly by in a second and you would feel like, I just got filled with the Holy Spirit. I just had an encounter time with the living God. And so you'd have these powerful times of prayer at the end of it. Somebody would say, do we even need the service now or can we just go home? And everyone would go, ha, 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 ha. And then a couple weeks later, we'd have another really powerful time and someone would say, do we even need the service now? Why don't we just go home now? And everyone would go, ha, 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 Just church humor, funny every time. But there was truth to it. We always did the service, of course, but, but there was a place of engaging with God in prayer where you just felt like, oh, I was just in his presence, like we just experienced in worship time this morning. I was just in the presence of the living God. I have been refilled with the Holy Spirit. I have actually just met with God. And when that happens, the peace of God that surpasses understanding is there. And so if our prayer life isn't there, and mine certainly is not all the time, it just means there is more for us to pursue. And it starts just with that prayer. Lord, as we sang this morning, let me be more aware of your presence. Lord, you are welcome here. Let me know that feeling of encountering the living God. So as Jesus teaches us to pray, there are different kinds of prayers he's showing us here. So in verse 9, this then is how you should pray. What's amazing about this prayer is that we believe that Jesus is God, right? He is literally God. He is God with us. He is God incarnate. He is God in the flesh. So when Jesus is saying this is how you should pray, he's saying that as God who knows the kinds of prayers that God wants to receive. Right? So Jesus knows very well what prayer should look like. He knows the kind of prayer that God is looking for, and he teaches us then how we should pray. This then is how you should do this. It starts with, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Hallowed means holy. It starts with acknowledging, Father who is in heaven, the God who is above us, your name is holy. So it starts with worship. It starts right there with worship. There is an acknowledgement that we are not God. And there's a humbling that happens every time we do that. Every time we sing our songs, every time we acknowledge who God is, there's a humbling that happens. We have that ever-needed reminder that he is God and we are not that he is the one over all things, that his ways are higher than our ways, that his thoughts are higher than our thoughts, and we are not him. And so this prayer begins with that acknowledgement. You are the Father. I am not. You are in heaven. I am not. You are holy. You are are set apart. You are sacred. You are different than anything else that exists. You are God, and I am not. And so as Jesus teaches us how to pray, it starts there. The humbling of ourself and the elevating of God in worship. You are God, and we are not. We remind ourselves of that. 
Last year, we did a series where we walked through the book of Revelation from start to finish. And uh, in Revelation, John has his vision, this great apocalyptic vision. And part of that is him getting caught up to heaven, and he's in the throne room of God, and he sees the Father and the Son seated on the throne. And one of the things he sees in Revelation chapter 5, verse 11 and 12, it says, Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. And in a loud voice, they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Worthy is the Lamb. Worthy is Jesus. You've heard me say this a hundred times. Why do we worship him? There's lots of reasons, but the main reason is it's because he is worthy to be worshipped, because he deserves it, because he is God, and because we are not. And yes, we also praise him for what he has done for us, and yes, we are thankful for the many blessings in our lives. There's lots of different sides to worship, but at its core, we worship him because he's worthy of it, and his worthiness never, ever changes His worthiness is never, ever, ever diminished. My attitude might not always be the best when it comes to worship. I might not be feeling it this day. I might not like that song. I might not be in the mood to jump into it. But all of that is irrelevant. We worship him anyway because he's worthy all the time. He is never not worthy to be worshipped. And whether I'm on the mountaintop or I'm in the valley, he is worthy to be worshipped. His worthiness never, ever changes. And the, the angels and the living creatures and the elders on, around the throne, day and night, they never stop saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. There is a 24-7 worship service going up around the throne because he is always worthy all the time. We worship him because he is worthy. And we sometimes talk about worship, and I talked about this a couple weeks ago, that it's not just about our songs, right? We worship with our lives. Our very lives become an act of worship. Uh, The sacrifice of our lives, the the obedience of our lives, that glorifies God and elevates him, and it does. And so it's not just about our words, it's also about our lives, but we don't want to swing too far onto that side either because it's not just about our lives, it is also about our words. That there is a time when we lift up our words of worship. And the book of Psalms helps us in this, teaches us how to pray, teaches us how to worship. So here's a handy little tool when it comes to the Lord's Prayer is that there are different kinds of prayers that we're walking through now. But as you pray through the Lord's Prayer, you start. Our Father, the classic version, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. It starts with worship. Then pause there for a minute and offer your own words of worship. Sing a a chorus of worship, if you like. But offer your own words to him. So close your eyes with me for a moment. We're not going to do this out loud today. So we would say, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Now, just in your own mind, offer up to him now your own words of worship, just for a moment. Maybe the words of a worship song that you like, or or just something in your heart to express to him. Just worship him for a moment. Amen. So this is where the Lord's Prayer becomes a a framework for us, not a formula, but we can engage with worship through the prayer, and then we can offer up our own worship as well. Moving on, your kingdom come, verse 10, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We've seen a prayer of worship so far. This is the prayer of submission. Let your kingdom come. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This might be the most radical and the scariest possible prayer to pray when we mean it. And I think often we don't mean it really at all. We might, we might believe it and acknowledge it, but to actually believe this as we pray it. Because if his kingdom is coming in my life, that means the kingdom of Chris Walker has to go. 
right? Two kingdoms can't be in the same place. Two kings can't occupy the same throne. That if Jesus is Lord, then by definition, that means I am not Lord. I am not in charge. And I think most of us probably live our lives with a certain amount of being in charge of our own life and doing what we want to do and, and, and fitting God into that as we see fit. But to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done, to, to really pray and mean, Father, let your will be done, means I am saying, my will not done. And if it's ever in conflict, then your will wins every single time. It is a way of saying, again, you are God and I am not. That ever-needed reminder that we are not God. Because if he is Lord, then that means, amazingly, he's Lord. That means he's boss. And that we are really praying, let your will be done. Then we are saying, okay, well then if my will is ever in conflict with your will, then your will wins. Even if it's not my first choice, even if it's not the way that I would like to go. There's a scariness to this prayer if we mean it. Because we're saying, Lord, I will do anything that you ask of me. I will go anywhere. I will sacrifice whatever you want. And I have met ministers in my life uh, who have said things like, you know, I am here to serve the Lord, but I will never leave this city. And I'll say, well, has the Lord told you you're not leaving the city? No, I just don't want to. And going like, okay, well, then that's not really the Lord's decision, right? That's you, you deciding that there are some limits. And it's easy to kind of look at that and say, well, you know, you really shouldn't be doing that. But it's probably better to say, okay, well, where in my life do I have things that I am not submitting to his will? Where do I have sins that I am not giving up? Where do I have control where I've said, this is what I'm doing. I haven't submitted it to him, but I've just decided that this is what I'm doing. Because to truly pray that prayer and say, your will is the most important thing to me, to truly pray that and mean that means that my career, the way I spend my money, my lifestyle, the way I'm living out, anything I want to live out, the future plans that I have, that all of it has a big asterisk beside it that says, if the Lord wills it. And if he doesn't, then I'm not doing my plans. I am willing to lay that aside. That means if the Lord tells you to sell everything and give everything you have to the poor, to pray, let your will be done, means that is what I'm going to do. I'll sell it all, and I will embrace a life of poverty. I'll give everything to the poor. If the Lord says you're leaving your comfortable job, and you're moving to Alaska, or you're moving to China, or you're moving to Africa, then you're actually saying, okay, Lord, if that is truly your will, I will do that. If the Lord says, hey, all those future plans you have, I'm actually going to take you in a radically different direction in your life. I have something else for you. Okay, Lord, then all my plans go away because I am praying for your will to be done in my life. That's scary, right? Because we're sacrificing then our comfort. We're sacrificing our plans. We're sacrificing our lordship of our own lives. We're giving it all over to him. But James says, like, we shouldn't even be going around saying, you know, my plans are in the future. I'm going to go over here, and I'm going to set up shop, and I'm going to make some money. He says, like, the, the best we should say is, if the Lord wills it, I will go over there, and I will set up shop and make some money. He says, anything beyond that, anything beyond that humble submission of if it's the Lord's will is arrogant boasting, James calls it. It is not properly being submitted to him as Lord. And so there is a a, a weightiness to this. We see Jesus wrestling with this very question in the Garden of Gethsemane, saying, Father, uh, if there's any way this cup can pass me by, this cup of suffering, this cup of pain, this cup of death that is coming my way, if there is any way, right? And it's the closest we see Jesus get to disobedience, but he doesn't cross that line because he then says, but Father, not as I will, but as you will, I will do whatever you want. Jesus had just told his disciples at the Last Supper, the world needs to see that I love the Father and that I do everything he has told me to do. And Jesus lived that out then. And even facing the cross, which is probably fair to say, more than any sacrifice any of us will ever face, And even there, Jesus is saying, Father, I will do anything you want me to do. I will obey you. I will submit to you. May your will be done. And as much as it's easy to sit here going like, well, I don't want to. I don't want to do those things. I don't want to 
give up my job. I don't want to move away. I don't want to sell everything I have and give to the poor. And, and again, I'm not throwing those out there like you should be doing those things. But if we feel the Lord leading us into these things, and even as we say that, it really is about that trust relationship. Because it is saying, Lord, I, I don't know what it means to sell all I have and give everything to the poor but I'm going to trust that your ways are higher than my ways. I'm going to trust that your thoughts are higher than my thoughts. I'm going to trust that your will is good. I'm going to trust that this way is right and that this way is better. There's a tremendous amount of trust required in this prayer. And to say, my life is not my own. I was bought at a price. I am not the Lord of my own life. Jesus is now the Lord of my life, is to say, I am going to trust you. That in one way or another, this is all going to work for good. That your will will be accomplished in this. I might not see the fullness of the rewards until I see heaven, but I'm going to trust that you are good and your will for me ultimately is good. And can we trust him enough to do that? This is not as radical as an example of some of the things I just said, but when Sarah and I pastored in Amherstburg, we really thought and planned to be there for 15, 20 years. Like, we really were there. Uh, Catherine, you were there with us at that church. Uh, we were really there, and we're like, we're going to have our kids here. We're going to raise our family here. Like, we love Amherstburg. We love our church. Life was good. Sarah had a good job. Like, just everything was great. We were planning how we were going to remodel the house, the house to get ready for a nursery and where the kids were going to live that we were eventually going to have. Uh, and then out of the blue, we were at a worship service on a Sunday night, and the Lord spoke to both of us. Sarah was at the front of the room. I was at the back of the room. It was just an extended worship time. We were having our own moments with Jesus. And as God was telling me in the back, it's time for you to leave this church, God was also telling Sarah at the front in the same moment, it's time for you to leave this church. And, and if we'd been hit by a truck, we couldn't have been more shocked. Like, it was so different than what we were planning. It was so different than what we were expecting. The next step, which was super fun, was there wasn't a job available for us to jump into right away. We were to resign on faith without something to go into. And so we did. And I fully expected that as that happened, that God would open a door very quickly and it would be a, a step forward and the next job probably would pay better and, and it would arrive very quickly. And the job didn't come. And then we were starting to run out of money. And so we thought, well, we better sell the house. And the job still didn't come. And so then we sold the house. We had to sell it at a loss because we were running out of money. This was right as the Great Recession was in full swing. And so we had bought a house at the height of the market. We had sold it at the bottom of the market. We see things on TV where people like, invest in real estate. It never goes down. And we go, ha, 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 That's hilarious. So we lost everything we had, which was not a huge amount. We were in our late 20s. But everything, all the equity we had in the house, everything that we had saved, we lost all of it. And I ended up taking my wife and moving across the province to Burlington and moving into my parents' basement, which is not something that fills you with a lot of, like, manly pride as a husband. And we were there for, for seven, eight months living in their basement. And they were wonderful and, and supportive and generous. And, and it was actually a really good season with them. And, uh, I had married Sarah while living far away from them. And so they had met Sarah before the wedding, but they didn't know her well. And so they got to spend all this wonderful time with their daughter. Sarah, their daughter-in-law, and, and it was valuable for lots of different reasons. Um, finally, the job comes. The door opens in Sudbury. There is a job there. But man, was there just an emptying out in that season. And it all started from that one worship night where God, out of the blue, said, it's time to quit, it's time to leave, and I'm not going to tell you where you're going, and you don't have a safety net, and it's just time to go. And in the logical mindset saying, like, well, if God is doing this, then there's going to be lots of blessing involved, uh, <laughs> going, well, the cross doesn't look like a lot of blessing at the time, right? There's lots of blessing coming, but sometimes we have to go through the valley before we can get there. And it ultimately led to good things. But to lose all of our money, to, to lose a lot of my sense of self and a lot of the feeling of, of I'm a provider, to question my calling even in there, going, I can't get anybody to hire me. I thought I was called to be a pastor. I can't get any church to hire me anywhere. We were looking at churches all over the world, and it was just not happening. And so there is a, a trust factor required 
where you say, okay, I, I don't really love the way this is going. I don't like that I'm throwing away my plans. I don't like that I'm giving up my comfort. I don't like that I am going into an, an unfamiliar territory, but I trust you that your will for my life will always be the right thing to do. That, that it will always be good because you are always good. And even if I don't see the fullness of the goodness of that decision until heaven, I'm going to trust you always. So this is not a light and fluffy part of the prayer. To pray, let your kingdom come and let your will be done is to say, you are God and I am not. And I will do whatever you call me to do. I was reading this week in uh, John chapter 2. That's the story of Jesus in the wedding at Cana. And the, the wedding runs out of wine. And Mary gets involved, his mother. And she uh, says to Jesus, they're out of wine. Jesus seems to say, I don't really want to get involved right now. It's, it's not my time yet. And Mary turns to the servants and says, do whatever he tells you to do. And I haven't stopped thinking about that line all week. Do whatever he tells you to do. What a line. What a line for the Christ follower. What's your job as a Christ follower? Do whatever Jesus tells you to do. And like what he told them to do was like, yeah, pour a bunch of water in these religious jars. Like that didn't make a lot of sense when the party's out of wine. But out of the obedience and out of Jesus' power, this miraculous thing happens. So to follow after Jesus is to follow Mary's advice. Do whatever Jesus tells you to do. So in terms of, again, a bit of a, a framework to help us pray. We start with worship, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. We pause and then offer up some of our own words of worship. And now we're going to do that again for the prayer of submission. So bow your heads with me, close your eyes. We'll pray the second part of the prayer. Your kingdom come, Father, your will be done on earth in my life as it is in heaven. And now on your own, just offer a few words of commitment to him in this area. Amen, Lord. May we be people who do whatever Jesus tells us to do. Moving on, verse 11. Give us today our daily bread. We've seen a prayer of worship so far. We've seen the prayer of submission. This is the prayer of petition. This is the prayer that we're probably all most familiar with because this is the prayer where we ask for what we need. Give us today our daily bread. Uh, much has been made of the language that is used here that Jesus doesn't just say provide for us in general. Jesus doesn't say actually cover us for the week or cover us for the month. Give us today our daily bread. It's a suggests that when it comes to prayer, there is a daily dependence required. That we come back to him daily and say, Lord, meet my needs for today. Give me today the bread that I need for today. And so yet again, just that ever-needed reminder that he is God and we are not God. That even the bread we eat comes from his hands. The dollars that we have come to us through our paycheck, ultimately come to us from him. And it is not that we don't do our part to steward well. It's not that we don't work for it. But the scripture says, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Everything belongs to him. And so everything we have comes from his hand. And in petition, we acknowledge that. And again, there's humility in that where we say, hey, Lord, I'm not just earning my bread by the sweat of my own brow and by my own efforts. I am trusting you for it, that you ultimately are going to provide for it. You ultimately are going to be the one who leads me into it. The verse we looked at a couple of weeks ago from Philippians 4, 6, and 7, kind of a key verse for the year of pursuing peace was, do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. So we are invited to do this. You are invited to bring your needs before him. We are called to do it in scripture. Bring your requests before God with thanksgiving, with a, a grateful heart, not an entitled heart, not a complaining heart, but with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So there seems to be a connection here between our prayer life and the peace of God. 
that transcends understanding. That as we come before him, as we offer up our prayers and petitions, as we are thankful, as we bring our requests before him, when that happens, the peace of God, which transcends understanding, will guard our hearts and it will guard our minds. Uh, And man, don't you want your hearts and minds protected from non-peaceful things? Like, don't you want to feel protected from just the, the plans of the enemy, from the voices of the world, from the anger, the frustration, the bitterness that we're seeing all around us right now? I want my heart and mind safe from that stuff. And so as we seek to, to seek the Lord and obey the Lord in this way, we bring our pre- presenting our requests before him. And so again, similarly to what we've done already, we pray the Lord's Prayer in worship, and then we pause and offer our own worship. We pray the prayer of submission, then we offer our own submission. Bow your heads with me yet again. Close your eyes. We pray, Father, give us today our daily bread. And now just offer up to him a few words of petition for whatever it is you need right now. Amen. So as we are people who bring our requests to God, may the peace of God come and guard our hearts and guard our minds. All right, moving on, verse 12, and then the last couple of verses after the prayer, verse 14 and 15, Jesus prays, forgive us our debts. Your version may say trespasses, your version may say sins, as we also have forgiven our debtors, as we also have forgiven those who trespass against us, as we also have forgiven those who sin against us. And so there is part of this prayer that is set aside for confession, where we acknowledge our sins before God, and that is something that we are called to do, again, regularly. Scripture also says we are to confess our sins to one another in James, and so we would encourage you to have one person in your life, you don't have to tell the whole world, but have one person in your life that you can share this with. And it's not because you, you, you know, need to be embarrassed by these things, but it's to have a partner to stand with you, to wrestle with, it, uh, with you through it, to pray with you and support you in prayer, to stand with you so that you know you're not alone in this stuff. So forgive us our debts. Forgive us our sins. We confess our sins regularly to the Lord. First John says that if we are faithful to confess, he will be faithful to forgive. It's a safe place to talk to him about this. So we confess our sins to him, but that's not where it stops. It actually gets harder even. So we acknowledge our sins before him. That shouldn't be that hard because he knows already, right? He knows this stuff. So we're just acknowledging it to him and asking for his forgiveness. But then also there is a place for us to forgive those who have sinned against us to forgive the one who wounded us, the one who betrayed us, the one who makes us angry, the one who spoke against us, the one who did that thing. We are to forgive them as well. And so the last couple of verses, as Jesus wraps up the prayer, there's this kind of PS on the end, verse 14 and 15. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. And if you felt a little tremble in that moment, you should. That is a fear of the Lord passage, to be sure. So if you forgive, you will be forgiven. If you don't forgive, you will not be forgiven. The reason that sounds so scary is that we only get to heaven if our sins are forgiven. We only get to heaven if we have a clean slate. And if it is being said here that the Father will not forgive your sins, the question becomes, well, are we going to heaven then? There's the parable of the unmerciful servant in Matthew chapter 18, and it seems to suggest this as well, that there are significant consequences when we do not forgive our brothers and sisters. And the reason for that is because God has forgiven everything that we have ever done and will ever do. He has wiped it clean. He has nailed it to the cross. We are washed white as snow. We didn't deserve it, but he did it out of his mercy and compassion. And so for us to then go to other people and not extend to them that same grace and mercy and compassion is a height of hypocrisy. Right To say, I want all the mercy, and I'm going to sing about all the mercy, and I'm going to be grateful for all the mercy, but I will not give it to you. It's, that's scary. 
And I think it's something that we all probably struggle with, and we have, we have to kind of stumble our way through it. It's been said about unforgiveness that when we don't forgive someone else, it is as if we are drinking poison, hoping that they die, right? It changes us, and not for the better. Our hearts get hard, and we get bitter, and we get cynical. And it might not be your fault what happened, but the wound comes, and if we don't find a way to find healing for that thing, it forms us, and not in a good way. And so we are called over and over again in Scripture to be forgivers. And, and there's a story where Peter comes to Jesus and says, how often should I forgive my brother? Seven times? Seven's a nice round biblical number. And Jesus says, not seven times, 77 times, or 70 times seven. And that's just Jesus' way of saying, no, you forgive without ceasing. You never stop forgiving. There's never an end to the amount of times. And maybe you've had this experience where you've uh, been hurt by someone, you feel like you've forgiven them, you've blessed them, and then a year later they do something else, and you go, and it all kind of comes back. And then you have to forgive them again. And I think that's what Peter means when he says 70 times 7. It's just, it is an ongoing process of forgiving them. And it doesn't mean uh, that they don't get dealt with, but the word of the Lord says, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. It's it's a way of saying, I'm not a qualified judge, and I'm a hypocritical one, actually, because I'm also a sinner. God is the perfect judge, and if that person needs to be dealt with, he is the one that can deal with them. And that doesn't mean you don't have a conversation with that person. If the law's been broken, that certainly does not mean that you don't get the law involved. But there are, are issues of our heart here where, where we are to release people. It says in the book of Colossians, the Apostle Paul is writing in chapter 3, verse 12 and 13, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Sidebar, the first part of that verse we should read every day before we head out into our day. We're going to be people who are different, chosen and different and dearly loved by God. And because of that, we are going to clothe ourselves today with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has has a grievance against someone, here's the key line, forgive as the Lord forgave you. Why do we forgive? Because we are forgiven. We forgive because we've been forgiven. They don't deserve it. They might not deserve it, but we didn't deserve it either, and we still got forgiven by the Lord. And so we are to forgive in the same way that he has forgiven us. Scripture says that he no longer holds our sins against us. And so that is how we are to forgive. We are to look holy and dearly loved, set apart and different and deeply loved by God. And again, it comes from that place of trust of saying, Lord, if they need discipline, punishment, whatever, I'm trusting you. I'm trusting that you can handle that, that I don't need to be the one to do the punishing. I don't need to hold it against them. I don't need to to grab onto that wrong that was done to me and not let it go. I can release all of that to you and trust that you will deal with what needs to be dealt with. So yet again, close your eyes, bow your heads with me. We pray, Father, forgive us our sins as we also forgive those who have sinned against us. And in this moment, confess a sin to the Lord if you need to acknowledge that. And if there is someone you're thinking about who's come to mind in this moment of someone who's hurt you or wronged you, pray some blessing over them and just pray a release of forgiveness on them this morning. Amen. And there may be more to pray into that, and I'll encourage you to do that on your own. Last part, we are just about done. Verse 13, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. So we've seen the prayer of worship. We've seen the prayer of submission. We've seen the prayer of petition. We've seen the prayer of confession. We've seen the prayer of forgiveness of others. And then Jesus wraps up with a prayer for protection. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Uh, God can't lead us and doesn't lead us into 
sin or into temptation, that's best understood as just lead us away from this. There is temptation out there. Lead us in a different direction and deliver us from the evil one. And so the prayer of protection, the fact that we have to pray about this, suggests that it's not automatic that we are automatically shielded from everything the enemy wants to do. If that were true, then we wouldn't need to pray this way. But we know there is still temptation out there for us, even as spirit-filled Christ followers who are seeking holiness. There is sin all around us. The temptation is there. The evil one is out there and can deceive us and afflict us and affect us in many ways. And so Jesus calls us to pray this way. Lead me away from sin today and protect me from the evil one. And so uh, we know from Scripture that Jesus has already defeated Satan at the cross, that the, the victory has happened, and yet we know the fullness of it has not yet been realized. And we as Christ followers live in that tension between the already and the not yet. So Jesus has already defeated Satan. Satan is not entirely removed from the scene yet. We are in this in-between time. And so uh, it's, it's a little bit like Germany at the end of World War II. The Allies landed on D-Day, and then the Russians began to push on the other side. And for all intents and purposes, as those things happened, the war was over. Like it was a, a foregone conclusion. The enemy was defeated, uh, and yet it wasn't quite over yet. And scripture talks about, we talked about this in Revelation, that Satan got cast down from heaven and he's filled with fury because he knows his time is short. He knows that he's lost and yet he is still full of rage and still has some influence and some power here in this world. And so we are always aware, we are not afraid. Uh, we are warned in scripture, 1 Peter 5, 8, be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour and that sounds scary, uh, but it doesn't say be afraid of that, but it does say just be alert, just be aware. Come on up, worship team, as we get ready to wrap up. Be alert. Don't get complacent. Don't get foolish. There is an enemy. He is real. Uh, Jesus is stronger. The Lion of Judah is stronger than the Lion of the enemy. But we are to pray, Lord, keep us away from sin in our lives. Protect us from the evil one. So again, one last time, close your eyes with me as we get ready to wrap up. Lord, we pray, lead us not into temptation today, but deliver us from the evil one. Pray your own prayer right now against sin. Pray your own prayer of protection for you and your family. Amen. So in those 20 seconds or so, of the Lord's Prayer. We have covered worship, we've covered submission, we've covered petition, we've covered confession, we've covered forgiving other people, and we have covered protection against the evil one. And so that's a lot, right? Packed into 20 seconds. And in 20 seconds, again, it's not super long. It's not super flowery. It's short and it is sweet and it is to the point. And in all of these things, as we worship, we're acknowledging that he is God and we are not. And there is peace there. As we submit to him, as hard as that is for our flesh to do, we are acknowledging that he is God and we are not. And there is peace there. As we ask him for our daily provision, we are acknowledging that he is God and we are not. And there is peace there. As we receive his forgiveness for our sins, there's a lot of peace there. As we find the way to let other people off the hook, to release them into forgiveness, there's a lot of peace there when we can find that. And as we seek him to protect us from sin, to protect us from the enemy, there is, of course, peace there. When we pray in this way, we are making sure we are reminded that he is God and we are not, and we trust him in all of these things. We trust him to be a good God. And so we're going to finish with some worship as we always do. And as we do, uh, as we worship, let us, again, just remind ourselves of who he is. Let us just reaffirm our trust in him. Let us rest in that, in the peace that comes with that today. Stand to your feet with me, please. Those of you watching online, crank up the volume. Join in with us, please, as we sing.